Welcome. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name is Luke. I'm one of the, the leaders here. And today I get the privilege of being able to take us through the, the, the next part in our series in Second Peter. If you're a visitor, can I please just extend a particularly warm welcome? Come and say hello to us afterwards. We're a friendly church. We'd love to get to know you. love to get to know your context and where you're from and how we can best love you. Um, today we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 3 from verses 1 to 9. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, what we're going to do is we're actually going to go through bit by bit and we're going to read the verse and then unpack it and read and unpack. So if you can have it in front of you, that'll be really, really helpful. Okay, I want you to, to do something for me. This is probably not the, the most common way to start a sermon, but I would like you to imagine something. I'd like you to imagine that you are on your deathbed. You're on your deathbed. And the, your brothers, your, your sisters, your, your friends, your family, your loved ones, they're all surrounding you. You've probably got about 15 minutes left of your life. 15 minutes to, to share the lessons you've learned from a lifetime of walking with Jesus. 15 minutes to, to pour out the wisdom that you've gained from years of falling and being restored by his grace. You've become acquainted with pain, with doubt, with sorrow. Some of your closest friends have, have walked away from the faith. Some have even become aggressors towards you because of your love for the Lord. Genuine joy and eager expectation is what fills your heart as you await meeting Jesus. You muster up the strength to, to, to open up your eyes as your breath begins to fail. You realize that these will be your final words. What will you say? What will you choose to say in your final moments? You see, Peter, Peter is, is nearing the end of his life and he knows that, this is, that his time is running out. He's soon going to be executed. This is the last recorded communication that he has with the churches across Asia that he loves so deeply. This farewell letter of Second Peter takes no more than 15 minutes to read. It's like his last 15 minutes. So what Peter chooses to communicate with his last words is going to be incredibly, incredibly important. Sam, Ben and Eddie have taken us through the, the first two chapters of this epistle. And what we've learned is that there were many false teachers rising up within the churches seeking to lead people astray with sensuality, with pleasure, seeking to undermine the authority given to Peter by God and the other apostles. They were distorting theology, manipulating God's word to suit their lusts and their desires. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to counter these accusations and false teachings, not to defend himself or his own status, but rather to preserve the faith of God's children and to point to the truth of the gospel. So we're going to pick up this morning, Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. Before we do that, let me pray. 
Father, we need you. This morning, we need your spirit to, to move and to work and to open our eyes and to soften our hearts. Father, would you be pleased to speak to us? Would you be pleased to speak through me in my brokenness? Father, use me, please, by your grace, for your glory. Amen. Chapter one. Sorry, verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. As I'm getting a little bit older, I'm definitely noticing that my short-term memory isn't quite what it used to be. I can walk into a room with, with focus and purpose, get distracted by some random thing, and then instantaneously forget what I was even in the room for. But I think it's there's actually a, a non-aging related forgetfulness that we as humans also experience. The reason I say that is because I say it in my kids too. We went on a, a family holiday a few weeks back and Shiloh and Isaiah had been looking forward to it for about a year. In the lead up, they were asking questions, they were getting prepared, packing bags, thinking through every single possible detail about this holiday. They were anticipating water slides and beaches and ice creams and playing with the cousins. Almost every single question was holiday related. They couldn't forget about the holiday because there's this, this eager expectation to experience all of the things they were anticipating. But unfortunately, I've noticed a couple of inconsistencies in our kids. Some selective memory issues, if you like. You see, Shadow and Isaiah do not get excited about turning off their bedroom lights. They don't get excited about cleaning up their plates after dinner. And they also, their affections aren't stirred for the dental hygiene and the parental rigmarole of what it is to make sure their teeth are brushed properly. You see, other things, other things capture their affections. They get distracted and they forget. So we have to remind them. But it's not the same with, with all of us. On reflection, I think that the forgetfulness is actually often an issue over what holds the keys to the affections of our hearts. You see, when we take time, real time, to sit down and contemplate the gospel, we realize that it's the most beautiful thing to have ever happened to humanity throughout history. It's changed everything. But how often, how often do we forget the vastness and the expanse of God's mercy to us as broken and sinful individuals? If we're honest, why is it that our, our temporary earthly circumstances often hold more of a directional sway on our hearts than the grace and the peace that is ours in Jesus? Good things, the blessings, steal the affections of our hearts, cause us to forget the one who is the giver. Difficult circumstances and trials cause us to question God's goodness and love. Day-to-day -day normality, we just become bored, self-reliant and disinterested. In all three veins of life, 
we are so quick to forget. You see, Peter, Peter recognized this in his own life. He was hot-headed, self-reliant, at times proud. He fought over who was the greatest when he was in the presence of Jesus. He told Jesus that he didn't have to go and die on the cross, and he got rebuked, and he even denied his Savior three times. Peter was well acquainted with forgetting the truth and privilege of being a Christian. And he saw it in our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. You see, that's why I think he, he uses this word, beloved, in verse 1. Yes, Peter had such a deep affection for the churches across Asia as he wrote, and that's true. But this word, beloved, has so much more depth than our English will allow us to understand. See, it's actually this, this Greek word, agapetoi, or agapetus. It's the root, the root word is agape, and we all know that word. So this word beloved signifies the purest, the purest, most intentional, sacrificial love that desires another's highest good. Peter is not just writing this as a farewell letter saying, I love you guys, that's not what he's doing. This word beloved is a golden thread that should lead his readers both then and now straight to the foot of the cross. For the first readers 2,000 years ago, and for us here today, it acts as a reminder that despite what we are feeling, despite the pressure and the pain we may be experiencing, despite the, the threat and hardship and loss and grief, even despite our forgetfulness, we are, we are the beloved children of the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done. This is our identity. It's who we are. He says that the purpose of him writing is to stir up their sincere minds by way of reminder. And this word for stir is the same word as to, to awaken, to wake up from sleep, to rouse from sleep. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, the purest minds need stirring up at times, and the more the better, there are hallowed memories in the minds of all Christians, but those memories are apt to lie asleep. And it is well to ring the alarm bell and wake up the memories, all the memories within the believer's heart, even as Peter did as he wrote, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Have you ever heard the expression, that person's not in their right mind? Or they weren't of sound mind? It's actually a reference to someone who's making detrimental, life-changing decisions. And do you think that's the, the gravity of what Peter is describing here? You see, when we don't process life looking through the lens of the gospel, we make all sorts of selfish and unwise decisions. If we live as though this life is all that there is, then our motivation is self-centered and short-sighted. Francis Chan, um, He's a brother from another mother, Chinese guy, out in America. Um, and he's got this analogy, which is brilliant, okay? So what he says is, he brings a rope on stage. I meant to bring one today and I forgot. But he brings a rope on stage, okay? And it kind of trails off the stage and goes out of a door. So just imagine that for me. And he says, this rope, okay? This rope represents life and it represents eternity. And this rope, 
just imagine it goes out of the door and all the way down towards Speak, and then from Speak over to the over the, the sea to Ireland, and then from Ireland all the way to America, and then from America all the way wrapping around the world, comes all the way back through this door and joins up again here. Okay, imagine that for me. And then on this rope, there is a tiny one-inch piece of red tape. This red tape represents our life here on earth. The rest of it is eternity. Okay, and even this is a limited understanding because this rope is finite, eternity is not. And what he says is, he says, people spend their life working so hard all the way to this part on the red tape so that they can enjoy this tiny, tiny, tiny bit at the end. But they forget about all of the rest of the rope that goes around the world. They forget about eternity. The short-sightedness is madness. To live in light of the red section and forget about the rest of the rope would be lunacy. to live in light of eternity with Christ and all that he has done at the forefront of our affections, to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit when we're prone to forget, to live as a community of believers with God's word as the central authority. This is what it means to be in our sound, sincere, true minds. That's what Peter's writing about. That's what he wants to stir up in people think about eternity. Like he's yelling off the page, wake up, you know what's real. Don't get drawn into believing that this life is all there is. Verse two and three. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now these scoffers included the false teachers that the other guys have been speaking about in this series so far. People in the churches who were causing division by twisting and perverting the truth. But it also includes those who followed the influence of those false teachers and exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now bear in mind that this warning is about false teachers in the church. Okay, this is not an external thing. Eddie mentioned last week about this ideology of a a, a super grace movement where people were saying that because Jesus died for all sin, then we can just go and and do whatever we want to do. We can live however we want to live. Follow your heart. Truth is subjective. So whatever's true for you, you're free to believe what you want to believe. It doesn't matter who you sleep with. It doesn't matter what you do. It's your body. You have needs. You deserve to have those needs met. And these arguments sound familiar, especially to you, our, our younger generation. Isn't it crazy to think that with all the technological advancements, we find ourselves in the midst of the human heart is still beating the same drum from 2,000 years ago. Self, 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 self. See, it wasn't just the false teachers who were mocking and scoffing. It was the the tidal wave of culture that was washing over Christians. All of the people following after their own evil desires, pounding and pounding through temptation and mockery. And Peter is saying, listen, listen, stay awake. You know this is coming. 
Scripture is littered with examples of people who walk away from the faith because it undermines their God of self. You can't serve two masters. You can't. It's either Jesus is Lord or you put yourself in that place. There's no halfway house. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, is one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. Jesus himself says this, so listen please, engage. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, these are my words. These are the words of Jesus. So it will absolutely come to pass. There will be people on the day of judgment, men and women who named the name of Jesus, but who lived for self and perverted the truth. They're going to be cast out into utter darkness for eternity. This should send shivers down our spine. Imagine the terror of hearing those words directed at you finality, the regret, never to be revoked. This passage, it's not about atheists or occult leaders who obviously have rejected anything to do with God. They're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. It shows that they have an understanding of who Jesus is. They're citing miracles that they've performed in Jesus' name as a means of their salvation to try and barter their way in. These are people within the church. And it says that many will say this. Many will say it. False teachers, scoffers, who rise up through the church seeking to distort truth for their own gain using the name of Jesus to pray on the vulnerable see I think it looks a a little bit different nowadays compared to when Peter penned this letter but I think the heart's still the same our culture has become so self-centric we can't name the name of Christ without ridicule backlash and cancellation the pervading narrative is that if God even exists then we are the ones to create him or her, as some people say. Our culture is led by celebrity and status. It's driven by fear of being viewed as intolerant. And sadly, many churches, many churches have bought into this lie. There's a plethora of church leaders across the globe that actually deny the very existence of Jesus. It's lunacy. When Peter wrote this letter, you couldn't have, well, you would have been seen as mad if you'd have denied the existence of Jesus. He was the most widely talked about and documented individual in history. There were eyewitnesses who were still alive 
people who saw his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So it was irrefutable. Jesus was alive. You couldn't argue against it. So instead, the false teachers and Peters, they argue a different way. They take a different route. It's still to follow their desires instead of their savior. They say this, verse four. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been decades. Where is he? Listen, he's not coming back like he promised. He's not going to intervene in creation. He's up there, chilling. He's not concerned with what we're doing down here. The sun rises, the sun sets, and no judgment yet. We can live how we want, consequence free, and tomorrow we'll just do it all again. Everything has remained the same since the beginning of creation. Have you ever driven down the motorway and then splat right in front of you, a bug lands on your windscreen? And quick as you can, you pull your little paddle for your windscreen wipers and you spray it, but like that, it's dry, isn't it? It must be literally one of the fastest drying things on, on earth. You spray it as quickly as you can and it's done. It's so, so, so distracting. How difficult is it? not to look at that splattered bug right in your side, uh, side, what's the word I'm looking for? Line of sight, that's what I'm after. <laughs> How difficult is it not to look at that? But what would happen if we fixated on it? We'd end up causing a 20 car pileup, wrecking ourselves, our loved ones and those around us. See, we know how important it is to look through the windscreen not at the windscreen. Our gaze needs to be set on where we're going. False teachers and scoffers are like the fool who become so distracted by what's on the windscreen right in front of them. They lack eternal perspective, getting distracted by the temporary things of this life and forgetting that there is a day coming when we are answerable to the almighty God of the universe. But verse five adds yet another layer. Look at this. For they deliberately overlook this fact. They deliberately overlook it. It's more than just being distracted. This is a willful act of rebellion. It's not passive in any sense of the word. Imagine knowing the dangers of traveling at 70 miles an hour. I'm only saying 70 miles an hour because you're all good Christian law-abiding people that never breach the speed limit. But imagine traveling at that speed and then still choosing to fix your gaze on that bug, choosing to fix your gaze on that bug. Romans 1.20 says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There will be no excuses that stand the test on the day of judgment. Peter goes on to say, listen, the scoffer's argument about God intervening in creation doesn't even make any sense. It's just an intentional, short-sighted, foolish nonsense. The earth itself was formed by God through water, and then it was judged through water. Think about Noah and the flood. God destroying the rampant wickedness that covered the earth. God sees all things. He is 
just and holy. He can't abide sin. Judgment has happened before and you know this. You know it. So God will again intervene in his creation. Don't be a fool. Verse seven. By the same word. By the same word. This, the Greek is logo. Same derivative as, as logos. So in the beginning was the word. This is that word logos. In the beginning was the word. Jesus himself. By this same word. Jesus himself. The heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I think we live in a tiptoe bubble wrap culture. I think we're scared to offend. I don't like Ricky Gervais. In fact, I actually hate what he stands for. But he said something that was, has just rang true for me for, for years. He said this, just because you are offended doesn't mean you're right. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Is judgment offensive? Yes, absolutely. It's supposed to be offensive in every sense of the word. The righteous judgment of a holy God is not gonna feel like candy floss cuddles. We all long for that day. We, as Christians, long for that day when there is no more pain, when there is no more suffering, when there is no more sin. Well, how do we get to that promise if all ungodliness isn't destroyed? The answer is that we wouldn't. We can't expect a, a utopian eternity and yet despise the means by which God, in his wisdom, chooses to achieve it. We can't bask in the grace of the cross and cling to this part of the Bible, but then reject the stuff about judgment because it seems a little bit unpalatable in today's culture. It's the same God, by the same word, Jesus Christ, who accomplishes both. The God who pours out grace to his children is also a consuming fire to those who reject that grace. That's actually the most loving thing. You see, sin can't dwell in God's presence. Unholiness can't be a part of heaven if heaven is sinless perfection. It has to be burned up. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire rained down from the Lord because of the perversity of the way of living. Humanity so bent on evil and sin that purging needed to take place. And this is a foreshadow a pattern of the final fiery judgment. So judgment and destruction of sin is actually a means of grace given by God to his children. It kind of leaves us with a, a bit of a question, doesn't it? 
this is a means of grace by God to his children, why do we still fear this fiery judgment? Why do we fear it? I do. I know you all do. You see, each and every one of us, each and every one of us, without exception, preacher even more so than hearer, when we go home and we take off our our Sunday smiles and we remove this thin, cracking veneer of self-righteousness, each of us knows, knows that we deserve to be burned up along with the ungodly. We know our secret sins. We know how to fool others and even ourselves. But deep down, in the quiet of night, we have no doubt that this is our deserved end. To be destroyed under the righteous wrath of God. To be cast out for eternity with weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no distinction. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve this. Without grace, that's what we're due. It'd be horrible if I left it there, wouldn't it? Look at verse 8 with me. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved. Agapetos or agapetoi, the recipients of the most outrageous, scandalous love that the universe has ever, ever experienced. It says this in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, the same, this word love, the same word agape, yeah? This perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Listen, we could never save ourselves. Never. Our hearts are so deceitful and wicked. But God himself himself brutalized whipped and tortured was nailed to a cross in our place this this is perfect love true agape he pronounced and pleaded for the forgiveness of the very ones who were crucifying crucifying him and make no mistake our lot falls with theirs see he knows our sin he knows our hearts are prone to forget prone to wonder prone to deny him prone to live for self he knew every single way we would continue in sin even after receiving the truth of the gospel he knew before the foundation of the world that you And I would not keep the promises time and time and time again. Do you want to hear the good news? 
true and perfect love is not dependent on us. True and perfect love is who God is towards his agapetos, his beloved children. That's who God is towards his children. That's why for the true Christian, we have no need to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Listen to me. The love that God has for each and one of us that belong to him is unfathomable. Bonnie said that this morning. Our highest understanding and experience of it in this life is not even an iota compared to the full reality that will be revealed when we see him face to face. Did you know that in the Bible there are 365 times that God tells us not to fear? It's one for every day of the year. It's complete, it's perfect. Day after day, year after year, his mercies are new every morning. Fear, fear has to do with punishment. And for us, God's beloved children, Jesus has taken all of the punishment for our sin. He took our fiery judgment. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they were thrown into the fiery furnace, yeah? And one appears with them in the fire. The one who saves, the one who preserves. Ponder on that foreshadow for a second. See, if you're a Christian, what, what you deserve is no longer tallied up and waiting for you. There is now. There is now. Not five years from now, when you think you may have it all sorted. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Not less condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. To set the mind on the things of the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life eternal and peace with God himself. Please. Allow this to stir your true and sincere mind. Allow it to awaken you to see the truth. If you don't feel it at the moment, then just ask him. Cry out to him. Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to stir your heart. Ask him to stir your affections. A broken and contrite heart the Lord does not despise. See, for the beloved child of God, Jesus' return will actually be a day of incomprehensible joy. It'll be a day of joy. The bridegroom has come back to lavish blessings on his bride. It'll be the best day of our lives, exponentially increasing in joy and betterment from one day to the next into and throughout eternity. That's the love and grace of God. We should be longing for that day. Like a child waiting for Christmas, the very thought of it should fill us with joy and not fear. For the one who rejects the grace of God in Christ Jesus, the day of judgment will be the, the most terrifying day. Wailing, sobbing, regret, and real, appropriate fear. Fear. 
nothing in history will have been more devastating for the unredeemed soul. Nowadays, um, many people scoff at the thought of this. It's been 2,000 years. Did Jesus even really exist? But you see, in God's time frame, it's only a couple of days. Look at verse 8. With the Lord, one day, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's a beautiful verse. Unfortunately, this verse has become so twisted over the years by false teachers. They take the passage that clearly teaches about judgment of the ungodly, and then they misapply the verse to say that God actually won't judge because he wishes that all would reach repentance. That's not what this is about. The world loves to hear that because it means that you can have your cake and eat it. You can presume on the patience and grace of God and keep on sinning, and then God will still wish you over the line into heaven. No. To contextualize this verse, we need to understand who Peter is writing to. And the first epistle of Peter does this for us. If you look at the the first verse, the first chapter of 1 Peter, it says this, to the elect exiles, the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This Verse is not a free-for-all scattergun that guarantees that all will reach repentance. That's not what it is. Nor is it a verse to imply that God isn't sovereign in his election to the saints. See, these letters, hence this verse, is written to the chosen ones, the ones who are his, before the foundation of the world. This is a conditional promise to those who qualify because of Christ. So why is Jesus still tarrying? Why isn't he returned? If we're we're waiting for him with eager anticipation and bated breath, why hasn't he come back yet? It'd be amazing if he came back now, wouldn't it? No more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow. I became a a Christian when I was 26, about 12 years ago. And that was around March of that year. Can you remember when you became a Christian, if you are one? Can you remember roughly the time, roughly the day? What if Jesus came back the day before? What if he came back 15 seconds before? Where would you be? By the grace of God, he tarried so that you and so that I, his elect, chosen children, could, within the confines of time, reach repentance in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, Jesus hasn't returned because it's not yet the fullness of time. Not all of his beloved have heard the beauty and the truth of the gospel. That's our friends. To our families, dare, dare I say, our enemies. 
Even the ones who, who mock and scorn and scoff, surely not them, surely not them. But listen, if we presume to limit the grace of God to only those who are deserving, then none of us will qualify. Vlad, Vlad Awara, um, Sorry, I've just skipped on about three pages. <laughs> Vlad Wara. Many of you know him. He was an atheist of great intellect. He took pleasure in deriding and scoffing at Christians. He saw it as sport. He literally would go up against them, try and argue them into submission. But God, in his glorious grace, broke through in the most unexpected way. It's an incredible testimony. I'll share it with you sometime if you want to know it. He ended up becoming a Christian here at Cornerstone, Liverpool, around a decade or so ago, and, and God transformed him in, transformed him from a scoffer into a church-planting pastor that has now planted the church in Romania, and people are being saved. See, we, we can't know who belongs to God. That's not our job. What we're called to do is indiscriminately spread the beauty of the gospel in word and deed and then trust the Spirit to lead God's elect to repentance. See, God's patience over judgment should never be a stimulus for doubt. Don't allow it to cause you to doubt. It should be a driver for mission. sat in my, uh, my office yesterday afternoon just trying to finish writing this sermon and, and the Holy Spirit just gripped my heart. And I just started sobbing uncontrollably. I think for the, the first time in my life I got a glimpse into understanding an eternity without Jesus. It hit me. My friends, my friends, my neighbors, my colleagues, my sister. I just sat there and wept. And then I prayed. As we move into communion, this signifies the privilege what we have Christian, as Christians have been brought into. What awaits us in glory is the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. An eternal celebration because of the sufficient work of our Savior. Listen, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then I would ask you to let this pass. This is a sacrament for God's children. If you're unsure about anything, have any questions, then, then please come and talk with me or Paul or to any of the elders. We'll be around the front. The Spirit may be moving in your heart and we want to encourage you to respond rightly and appropriately. So the bread, the bread represents Jesus' body, broken for us. And as a result, we get to feast on the bread, the bread of life, full and absolute provision.
We have everything, everything that we need, we have in Jesus. The wine or juice represents his blood shed for us to, to cleanse us from our sin and our unrighteousness. He took our cup of wrath and now our cup overflows with the joy that abounds in him. Communion is a, a solemn celebration, if you can have such a thing, a solemn celebration. It took the, the, the death of God himself to save us. But it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame. And if you're a Christian, then you, my dear, beloved brother and sister, are a glimmering facet of the joy that Jesus holds so dearly in his heart. Regardless of what your week's been like, regardless of where you have fallen and failed, because we all have. Trust that what he has done is enough. But what we should do is also recognize that each of us knows people that if judgment was here today, if Jesus came back today, they would be excluded from that eternal joy. That should wreck our hearts. I'm going to ask the, the guys to come and start passing the bread and the wine out. And what I want us to do is, I, I don't want us to take this straight away. I want us to sit there with the bread, and I want us to sit there with the wine, and take time to understand the privilege and the significance of what it is you're holding. Sit and wait on the Lord. Let's ask the Spirit of God to put people into our hearts and into our minds, people who He loves, people who don't yet know what it is to call Him Savior. Romans 10, 14. But how can they call on him unless they've believed in him? And how can they believe in him unless, sorry, if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, his beloved children not wishing that any, any of us elect would perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me pray. Father, by your spirit, lead us now. Put people on our hearts, please. Help us to move toward them in love, knowing that, knowing that we need you so desperately. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we are your beloved children, not through anything that we have done, but all because of what your son has won on our behalf. Help us to respond rightly and appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray.